God's people chose darkness over light, death over life. Why? What were they thinking? After all the glorious good that God had done in creation, they wouldn't listen to the one who loved them most. The world began with words, but when those words were twisted and doubted, the wild and waste that had been subdued in the beginning began rumbling again, but this time in the hearts of humans. So God, who had made the world and all that is in it in order to dwell with his people, sent them out of his lush mountaintop garden. They wandered east and down to a dark place filled with dust, danger, and death. The chirps of robins gave way to the screeches of vultures who were hanging high overhead in anticipation for the death brought about by human rebellion. The golden aroma of blooming flowers was quenched by rot and decay. Like the soles of their feet, the souls of humans grew hard and calloused in the wilderness. Violence and rage ravaged the land. War was the new way. They thought they could live without God, and surely they tried. They built a tower for themselves, a hollow mountain of pride. My name is Kenneth Paget, and this is the Story of God podcast, presented by Wolfbane Books. We have seen God's words tame the dark, rumbling wilds. His words are the very means by which light and life came to be. At the end of chapter 1 of Genesis, God surveyed his creation and declared that it was very good. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that the God of the Bible is a God of infinite goodness. He is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. All the beauty we see, smell, hear, touch, and taste in creation is a faint reflection of the everlasting beauty of the Maker. And this beauty beckons us to worship. The human heart is, above all else, an organ of worship. It seeks satisfaction and was designed to be in a state of wonder and gratitude. Of course, Just following the story so far, we can see that the heart of mankind finds its ultimate satisfaction in the God who placed us in his midst. Who else or what else have we seen that could rival the goodness of God? A pure, healthy heart is a heart that savors God's goodness above all else. In the beginning, we were innocent and satisfied. God made a lush garden bursting with abundance, and placed humans in it. In Genesis 2.16, God told Adam that he could eat freely from any tree in the orchard of Eden. God leads with the gift of plenty, and only after he has offered his abundance to Adam does he say that he is withholding just one tree for now. It is important to notice the order here. Sometimes we tend to think that God is really just a God of restrictions, that he doesn't want us to have nice things or a good time. But here we betray our myopic, toddler-like ability to see and savor what God, our Father, has already blessed us with. The thou shalt nots come after God's abundant gift of life. 
To use an analogy from grammar, the indicative always precedes the imperative. God placed Adam and Eve in his garden, where they could be satisfied and sustained by his presence and provision. He made them in his image and told them to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to rule over its inhabitants. God's vision for humanity is one of bounty and abundance and flourishing in his presence as we walk according to his ways, reflecting on his goodness and glory as we rule on his behalf. This is what we were made for. This is the goal of creation. Ultimately, the restriction regarding the fruit of that one tree was for our good. Like a perfect father, God loves us and guides us in the way we should go. The prohibition regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was most likely a temporary one. We don't know a lot about Adam and Eve, but the few details we get are of huge importance. The author gives us no frivolous details, only exactly what we need to know to understand his message. One detail everyone knows is that they were naked and unashamed. This is a picture of an infant-like innocence. They, like this brand new world and this freshly formed garden, were meant to mature into something even more wonderful. Just as we withhold certain things from our small children until they are mature enough to handle them, so God, in His fatherly wisdom, didn't want His children to partake of this fruit yet. Have you ever said, Don't touch this. It's hot. You'll get burned. So the father says here, don't partake. It will lead to death. Just because we don't let our small children cook on the stove doesn't mean that we don't ever want them to cook. Now, of course, I'm not saying Adam and Eve were actually children. You don't tell children to be fruitful and multiply. I'm simply saying that these first people were innocent in a way that is hard for us to grasp. As I said, the naked and unashamed description is pointing toward an infant-like innocence. In heaven, and in the new heavens and the new earth, God's people are fully mature, and also fully clothed. This reality helps us see that it's not exactly right to think that the very good in Genesis 1 means as perfect as it can be. God created things that grow, and spread, things designed to move toward maturity. Remember when I asked you in the last episode to imagine with me where God's good plan for creation leads? Adam and Eve, flourishing in the presence of God, multiplying and having children in Eden, and their children having children, and their children having children, and so on and so forth. As the people continue to cultivate the garden and expand its borders over the rest of the world, a global garden city begins to come into view a city filled and flowing with God's life and light? After the six days of creation, God said it was very good, but it was meant to mature into something even better. This is also true of Adam and Eve. When the time was right, they would likely partake of this tree, growing in knowledge and wisdom. God speaks good things. We were made to listen to his words, walk in his ways, and delight in his will. But this isn't how the story goes, is it? The heartbreaking reality is that they listened to another new voice in the story. This was not the voice of creation, but one of decreation. This was not the voice of life and light we've read about. It's a new voice, a voice of death and darkness, 
a voice that passed over a forked tongue. The serpent's tactics are plain to see. By calling God's words into question, he's calling God's goodness into question. And in the saddest moment there ever was, Adam and Eve believed the lie and disobeyed God. They heeded the wrong voice. They cast aside God's world-making words, and the unraveling of creation began. First, shame, then blame, and then worst of all, exile. Exile out of Eden, out of God's presence, out of the holy place of God's garden sanctuary. The garden was a place of abundance, the wilderness outside, a place of toil, sweat, strife, and pain. The garden contained the fruit of life. The wilderness would swallow up the dead bones of Adam and Eve and the bones of all their descendants after them, from dust to dust. They were exiled out of the place of eternal thriving and into the place of terminal striving. Tohu Vavohu, the wild and waste of Genesis 1-2, was beginning to rumble again, this time in the deep darkness of the human heart the heart that would struggle to be satisfied all its days. Humans outside of Eden, away from the presence of God, are like fish out of water, beating ourselves up against a hard land, flailing about in violent contortions, dying. Death was in the warning God gave Adam. They didn't physically die that day, but like a fish leaping out of water only to land in the bottom of a boat, the process had begun. The rebellion and exile of Genesis 3 is immediately followed by a story of murder in Genesis 4. And just so that you don't miss it, Genesis 5 pounds the drum of humanity's death march. The rhythmic chant, and he died, and he died, and he died, is deafening. In Genesis 6, the drums reach a cosmic crescendo. The sons of God, the B'nai Ha Elohim, see that the daughters of men are beautiful and take them for themselves, eerily similar to the account of Eve seeing the beauty of the fruit and taking it. And this leads to corrupt offspring as the women bore mighty, warring giants on the earth. In Genesis 6-5, God saw that the evil of humankind was great upon the earth, and every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was always evil only. The text goes on to note that the earth was corrupted before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Remember, like a fish out of water. Speaking of water, Genesis 7-9 through recounts God himself decreating the world by covering it once again with the chaotic cosmic waters, preserving a single family and an actual boatload of animals. Even though Noah and his family are put in an Edenic setting on the top of Mount Ararat, they too fail. Like the cosmic mountain in the creation account, the one on which the Garden of Eden sat, the mountain of Ararat comes up out of the chaos waters, and God's people cultivate the land, plant a vineyard, and begin to multiply. In the last episode, I noted that Eden was situated on top of a mountain, and that this location had significant theological import because this was God's holy mountain abode. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, the call toward the heart of true Narnia, towards Aslan's fullness, is further up and further in. In the biblical story, the pathway from God and his mountaintop dwelling is further down 
and further out. When Adam and Eve were exiled, the direction away from the presence of God is a downward descent to the east. The guardian cherubim are situated at the eastern gate of the garden to prevent re-entry. Cain, after killing his brother, wanders east. The land of Shinar in Genesis 11 is in the east. We've seen God place his people in Eden on his holy mountain. Then, after the waters once again covered the world, we saw him place Noah and his family on the mountain of Ararat. Now, in the east, we encounter a third, more sinister mountain in the story. Something more akin to Mount Doom than Aslan's country. But before we get into Genesis 11, I'd like to quickly add some clarity to the name of the city with the famous tower. Depending on where you are from, you've probably heard it called Babel or Babel. For reasons that will become clear as the story progresses, I'm going to use the Hebrew pronunciation Babel. And here's another quick note. The story of Babel, again, Babel or Babel, in Genesis 11, is of monumental importance in understanding the rest of the story. Yet, it is an all-too-often-overlooked scene in most modern Christian minds. How many times do we tell the story like this? God created the world, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and Jesus came to forgive our sins and secure our place in heaven. We are too quick to move from Genesis 3 to John 3. As the story unfolds over the coming episodes, you might be surprised to see Bavel play a major role in the coming of Jesus and the establishment of his church. So you'll see in our picture book, The Story of God With Us, we make much of Bavel, Babel or Babel. Now, in Genesis 10, we see that this city was founded by Nimrod, a figure who is literally cloaked in black. In his short description, we learn that like the murderer Cain, he builds a city. And he is a mighty man of old, like the mighty warring offspring, the Nephilim, that led to the flood in Genesis 6. And as the founder of the city of Babel, he is connected to the great rebellion in Genesis 11. Oh, and his name means, we shall rebel. As humanity has been tumbling head over heels down the mountain of God, away from Eden, things have been progressively spiraling out of control. The Babel narrative in Genesis 11, 1 through 9, represents humanity finally sliding to a stop in a dust ball of depravity at the foot of the mountain. Situated even further east, they don't bring offerings to God. They don't appeal to his infinite kindness. They don't call on his great name. Instead, they scheme to come together as one and build a city that lived up to its founder's name. We shall rebel. It wasn't God's great name they wanted to lift up. It was theirs. All humanity, with one language, wanted to put their name in the heights of the heavens. They decided to build a rival mountain, a tower that would pierce the heart of heaven. No doubt this was some sort of proto-ziggurat, a man-made mountain for the cultic worship of false gods. As they stacked stone upon stone, they perverted their God-given propensity to build and cultivate. The great global garden city where humans would flourish in God's presence forever was traded in for a pathetic stack of bricks in the godless desert of Shinar. As they marvel at their colossal mud mountain, we are told that God has to come down to see it. 
Maybe the ants think they are taking over the world with all of their ingenuity and labor. But it all comes to naught when the lawnmower passes over, like a Category 10 hurricane. God will not let this futile plan continue. He confuses their language so that they cannot work together in their rebellion. And then he scatters the various families of the earth across the wild world. Genesis 4-11 through tells the story of humanity without God as we descend further down and further out. All is lost. God's beautiful plan in creation has been abandoned by his own image bearers. His vice regents want to rule in their own strength. Now, if the story ended here, we would have what in classical literature is called a tragedy. But God isn't writing a tragedy. To stick with the categories of classic literature, the story of the Bible is a comedy, and it has a gloriously happy ending. But we don't get there by flipping from Genesis 11 to John 3.16. The comedy starts at the end of Genesis 11 with a genealogy of all things. And there is a flicker of hope in the words, Now Terah fathered Abram. This episode of the Story of God podcast was presented by Wolfbane Books. Please visit us at wolfbanebooks.com or on social media at wolfbanebooks.com.